I'm Anthony Walsh and this is the Roadman Cycling Podcast, the show where we empower you with the tools to optimize your health, your happiness and your longevity. Joining us today is Mr. Jay Vine. He's back for maybe his fourth, possibly his fifth appearance on this podcast. Jay has gone all Billy big time. His career has really taken off since we've chatted last. He's moved over to arguably the biggest cycling team in the world, teammates with Tadej Pogacar now over in UAE. He won this year's Tour Down Under, also claiming the Australian time trial title and two Vuelta stages last season. It's an honor and it's a privilege. Every time we chat, I have such a blast. You're going to love this conversation. Here's a little taste of what awaits you today. That didn't really work for me because it just estimated my FTP to be ridiculous, like Contador eating a bad steak, sort of ridiculous. (laughs) When it comes to professional cycling, we're very limited by the UCI. So so any sort of technology like that that we can't use, that that we use in training, that we can't then use in racing is sort of useless to us. In saying that, we still have riders that think that the inside of baguettes uh, are bad because they hold water. <laughs> so you know, I think we're going beyond uh, beyond here. How do you make sure you're switched on for those tiny moments? Well, I mean, really enjoying being in the moment, for starters. I think as soon as you stop liking being in that moment, that's when you start switching off and daydreaming and thinking about other things. Jay Vine, it's been a minute. Welcome back to the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me back. They've been pretty busy and uh, good to good to finally be chatting again. A lot has changed in your world since we last talked. You were an up-and-coming, scraping to pay your electric and your phone bill cyclists, and now you're over the big contract in UAE. Let's talk about first what motivated that decision to join UAE. I mean, I think it's pretty pretty obvious for most people to see one of the reasons it was, you know, salary wise, but also results wise. I, I've always, always been a fan of time trialing. Like it's one of the first things that captured my my fascination with road racing was the, the, the time trial aspect because it was how good you are about covering a certain distance in the shortest amount of time, you know, and being able to pace your effort down to the the what essentially um and i just haven't had that opportunity until moving to uae to be able to to show that and you know doing the the tt in nationals and now getting selected to do the tt in worlds it's yeah that's that's massive reason yeah so bring me inside because most of us are listening to this interview are viewing the sport from the outside in but bring me inside what sort of level of detail goes into almost the anatomy of a pro cyclist from within a team so you're talking about time trial there's different components in that from tech to training but let's think about training from a starting point like when you went into uae do they take charge of your training because i know you had a good pre-existing relationship with your long-term coach yeah so full taking over of all aspects of of the training as well as a full dietary uh nutritionist plan we have the one nutritionist for the entire team so that's a massive job that he's got but you know it it daily a daily change that is coordinated with our coach of this is the plan that we're going to have for the day or the week or the month 
uh, we want you at this weight by this point of this time. And, you know, we strategically, he strategically maps out a nutrition plan to get us to that weight, obviously with the correct hormone levels so that we're not uh, uh, eunuchs um, with no testosterone <laughs> um, by the end of it. But also, you know, we don't want to be cutting a kilo and a half in four days right before, you know, the Tour de France. So that's that's a massive, a massive help um, to be able to have that done. But then also trying to fit in specific time trial training work around, you know, just your regular training. And that's just something that I just I haven't had access to before. Um, not only did I not have a, a TT bike with my previous team, but... Which is kind no. of wild, like for me to understand, like even at continental level, I had a time trial bike. You go into World mm. Tour and you don't have a time trial bike. It's It seems insane in 2023 that this is still a reality. Well, I mean, if you think about it, that would mean that you'd need three time trial bikes. So you'd need a home time trial bike, you'd need a, a race time trial bike, and a spare time trial bike. And that's also not including any any screw-ups that might happen. So if one gets broken in transit, you essentially need a frame sitting somewhere in a truck as well. So four bikes for 30 riders, you know, that's a lot to try and get from a manufacturer all at once at the start of a year. And then on top of that, you've got the group sets to try and get four sets of group sets as well. It's, you know, bike industry is not that big. And if essentially, I think there's 18 world tour teams, so just do easy numbers, 20 world tour teams, you know, with four sets of group sets and four sets of bikes, all wanting them, all January 1. A lot of bikes. They can't, they can't <laughs> coordinate that. It's, it's impossible. So, you know, the, the bigger teams with the bigger budgets, I think I saw a, a Twitter post the other day saying, you know, the average budget for a world tour team is 20 million. You know, that that's the average budget. And there are teams that push that up. Yeah, and then there's, yeah, obviously on the far end of that, there's teams that are really being efficient with their spend. But I'm interested to unpack the coaching part again. So when you walk in and you have your first meeting with your coach, like, what's that looking like? Is there a review of historical training data? Is there testing protocols? And how does he go about planning out your annual training plan? Um, well, yeah, when I first joined, I sat down with my, my coach, my coach is Jerome Schwart, uh, South African, and we work really, really well together. He's, um, he really matches my style of ticking boxes and did you complete the the task? And, you know, that, that is my sort of personality. Um, box ticking is is definitely one of the, my favorite things. So seeing opening my training peaks and seeing green, that's that's good for me. <laughs> but uh, basically, you know, we had a look at, okay, where have you performed best previously? And let's try and emulate that and improve. So we looked at obviously my Vuelta results from last year. We looked at my buildup. We looked at, you know, weight. We looked at, you know, uh, power graphs, power graphs after fatigue and we identified my natural strengths my natural weaknesses and we've built our season around that obviously not everything goes to plan and we've had to adapt a lot after after down under but um, with injury and stuff like that but now that we've moved past injury and 
gotten over Giro sicknesses, it's yeah, back on track. So For the first time in years, I have really big targets that I'm super passionate about this summer. And although the warmer months are approaching, I don't want to slip into that trap I see so many riders falling into, just riding around with no focus and no aim with their friends, simply because the good weather is starting to arrive. I'm still using my Watt bike almost daily to keep me sharp and on point with specific sessions all the way into my target events, Rift, Migration Gravel, and Leadville later this summer. That's why I'm really happy to be partnering with Wattbike. The Wattbike, Adam, it's sitting next to the desk in the recording studio, and if I have an error between interviews, I jump on. It's removing all those friction points for me. No more 10-minute setup, unfolding legs, banging my knees off stuff, connection issues. It just works every single time. The Adam is perfect for riding Zwift because it has those crisp gear changes. Boom, boom. 1% power accuracy and max gradient capability of 25%. If only my legs had a max grading capability of 25%. Even if I'm riding those steepest climbs on Watopia, it's absolutely fine. I'm actually riding that custom gearing setup. So if I'm riding a particularly hilly route, I'll select a more climbing suitable gear ratio. It's the business. If you're looking for an indoor trainer, if you're looking to stay sharp this summer and not lose that hard-earned fitness over the winter, I couldn't recommend the Watt Bike setup any higher. It's the last indoor trainer you're ever going to need. Head on over to whatbike.com now and check out their full range. How much of a third voice is there from a director sportif into this process? Because, you know, you can go in and you can chat with the coach and say, okay, my goal is to win more Grand Tour stages this year, be it in the Giro Tour of Vuelta. And the coach will say, okay, amazing physiologically if one stage isn't the welter before so you're totally capable of this but then the team director does he have a voice to come in and say actually you know what we're seeing you more in a supportive role in riding into the basic climbs so now there's a different physiological demand on that than there is for winning hilltop finishes so training needs to adjust accordingly yeah i mean the that that is that is something that that would happen normally i'm fortunate in the fact that my physiology and also to win a race from a breakaway for example in my condition is to be winning from a small group in a small kick or solo in the last 6k or something like this to turn me into a helper i'm still doing the same job for for a rider like jow or juan at the end of the at the end of a stage in the volta for example um, at the top of a climb so the physiology doesn't change for me to do that sort of job whereas winning from a breakaway or doing a, a 3k six and a half watt per k per kilo pull at the you know halfway up stelvio for example but yeah i mean obviously if yeah if i was doing more classics racing and they wanted to use me for that middle two hours um in positioning then yeah we'd have to work on a lot more uh medio and threshold and probably some vo2 surges uh to make make sure you can hold position at the front of a bunch and has your training noticeably changed like if you were to be uh if i was to get your training peaks login now would i be able to see that point when you swap from coach a to coach b in terms of stylistic uh, approach from the sessions not really i basically do this the same thing that i had been doing before there's only really two ways there are two differences 
since moving from Alperson. Alperson used a lot of uh, the insight testing, which is critical power based. And that didn't really work for me because it just estimated my FTP to be ridiculous, like Contador eating a bad steak, sort of ridiculous, <laughs> um, which meant that I just couldn't complete any of my sessions. Okay. Whereas now we're testing a lot more with just FTP stuff and in race, you know, 20 minute efforts to, to work out FTP that way, which I think is a much better value to, to go off because you're going to get the best out of yourself in a race. Like you're not, you're not holding back. You're not, you're not letting that wheel go until you are completely empty where you, you might have a bit of self-preservation uh, if you're in, uh, in training, but um the other one was the hours. The hours, I'd say, dropped dropped a little bit, but they dropped more than what most people would think. Like before I was probably doing 24 hours a week. Now I'm doing 20 hours a week on average. And, you know, if you'd said to most people what do professionals do, they'd, they'd probably give you a number like 30 hours a week of of actual riding and that's that's just not something that I, I end up doing. So, yeah, there's a lot more efforts involved and a lot less riding around at sub-endurance, sub, sub um, which is a bit of a change from what we were doing at Alperson. And is that logistically difficult based in Andorra with the nature of the terrain where you're either going uphill or downhill for a chunk of the time? Um, no, it's, it's actually pretty good because, you know, we, we – you know, doing doing the super easy stuff, it's just not possible. So, um, yeah, I don't end up doing a five hour ride where I was supposed to average say two hundred watts, and you know, every climb I'm doing two hundred and sixty. You know, that's that's a pretty big jump. You know, nearly twenty percent over what you're supposed to be doing. So it so it really does fit with the terrain that I'm I'm riding in, and also the type of rider I I am. So. Yeah, and also the nature of racing. It's there's hardly any easier races. Like the Tour de France, the Tour de France, they they just drilled every climb at probably <laughs> five five point two watts per kilo until the final hour where they they stepped it up to six. Like brutally hard hard racing. And so you're stepping back from kind of the traditional mold of the 30, 25 hour weeks that we'd associate with pro cyclists back to twenty. But is there other activities that have stepped in to fill that void i know just before we jumped on air you were saying you're just out of the sauna is that type of stuff that you're purposefully incorporating into your weekly schedule now yeah i'm, I'm purposely i've always done a bit of sauna um mainly just to get used to and get really prepared for the heat you know coming from australia once i'm adapted i'm 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 good to go but i do need to be properly adapted readapted to the heat every year because otherwise i just i just absolutely struggle but yeah i mean the the non measurable stresses that you get yeah i mean that's definitely something that that i do a lot more of but uh, you just you just can't measure okay this is how much tss you know this certain amount of rehab work um took or this this is how much TSSA, a sauna session takes or, or stuff like that. Um, because, you know, as, as your career goes on and on, you'd have injuries and you need to rehab them every so often. And that's, that's just something that 
takes up time, takes up energy and yeah. I had a chance to chat with the Factor founder, Rob Jatellis, on the podcast. It's worth going back to check out that episode. I was super impressed with him personally. Factor are really pushing the boundaries of what's possible with aerodynamics in bike design at the moment. But they're doing it with a social conscience, and that's what's so impressive for me. They're mindful of that environmental impact, paying employees a living wage, and resisting the urge to relocate production, like so many competitors, to lower-cost labour markets. I'm super proud to be riding Factor Bikes for the upcoming season. If you're considering buying a bike for yourself, put me a DM over on Instagram or over on Twitter and I'm going to give you a personal introduction to the guys at Factor and make sure you get the very best possible experience. It's still quite interesting that World Tour Riders and yourself are still talking on TSS. I had Dirk Freel on the podcast, who, you know, the founder of Training Peaks, and we were talking about TSS and the limitations on TSS. And there's obviously loads of limitations. We could probably sit here for the next half hour and just chat about limitations. You know, if I have a full travel day where I go from Dublin to Andorra, I miss two flights, have terrible nutrition all day, I'm up for a 24-hour period, and I don't train, Training Peaks will register that as a zero training day and make me a little bit mm. fresher the following day. So there's, and there's a bunch of flaws like that. If my median amount of steps is 10,000, I walk 100,000 steps today. There's no real way of factoring that in because if I'm to put in a training stress score for that, it has a corresponding increase in my CTL, but it weights that then the exact same as it would a bike session, which probably doesn't have quite a linear relationship. Oh, and, and yeah, like you said, there's a thousand, like altitude specifically for my situation is a big variation, you know, it's like I might start at eight, 700 meters in Spain, go up to 2,400 meters, you know, th- there's, there's a whole bunch of different TSSs involved in that, but we just can't. Yeah. Are they working on anything or are you guys using anything in-house that, you know, is an improvement upon TSS? For me, no, I'm, yeah, I'm just sticking to, to TSS at the moment. I think there's a bit of a push in coaching circles at the moment for lactic acid uh, testing. But I mean, it's when it comes to professional cycling, we're very limited by the UCI. And we've already seen someone be disqualified for using a glucose monitor. Yeah, super safe. Um, in it? racing. Yep. And so, so any sort of technology like that that we can't use that we that we use in training that we can't then use in racing is sort of useless to us because we can't train all year around using a certain metric and then come to the Tour de France and then get told, oh, we're going to swap you back to the old system and sort of hope that it that it works even though the UCI don't allow you to use that system in the race sort of thing. So. Um, but you know, I think there's an advantage in something like uh, continuous glucose monitor where you can use it on a six-hour race simulation day and you can know your blood sugar all the way through and nail down mm-hmm. a fueling strategy, which you can then just mimic on a six-hour mountain stage, or you think there's more variables at play that make that change over difficult? I think there's more variables specifically when you, when it comes down to you know hormonal changes, fatigue. Um, you might be carrying a bit of a bit of a bug so, you know, short of, and I, I don't know if any teams do this, short of doing a full physical every morning and then every evening, which just I think would completely overload someone's uh, 
you know, ability to recover in a, in a race. Just, yeah, imagine getting a full physical with full bloods and the results back before the start of the race to work out your hormone levels, your uh, white blood cell count to know if you're, you've got a bit of an illness going, blood pressure, you know, all of that done before the race and post-race to know, okay, this is how much glucose you're going to require to recover. Yeah, I think that's that's not something we can do with our current technology without booking riders. I mean, in saying that, we still have riders that think that the inside of baguettes uh, are bad because they hold <laughs> water. So you know, I think we're going beyond uh, <laughs> beyond here. You know what? My current girlfriend who I've been with now for five years, I've never been a full-time cyclist when I've been going out with her. Um, one of our early dates, we went to a you know a regular restaurant. I ordered soup, and I find myself digging out the center of the baguette just from racing in France. And she's like, "What are you doing?" And I was like, "I actually don't know. It's just so automatic that I was just digging out the center of the baguette. Makes absolutely no sense." But we, or my French director, you say to give you bread legs. Like, what are bread legs? Um, I've I've never heard of bread legs, but. Yeah, it's 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 crazy to me that yeah, the crust of something is is good, but the inside is not. Um, to the point where you know, are oil, oil calories like olive oil calories? If the olive oil is cold and out of a bottle, do they count? Because I, I I'm I'm starting to question if they do actually count because the amount of people that that have olive oil just like pools of it, like that don't they don't gain weight. It's just bizarre to me. <laughs> So I actually was thinking about what are these big incremental shift changes we can have in cycling at the moment. And I'd love to get your hot take on this because two of the biggest ones I see are when we get continuous lactate monitoring. So similar to the continuous glucose patches we're seeing from Super Sapiens, when that becomes a continuous lactate monitoring and now we can use that to assess zones. And the second one is AI when it's something to control through this WHOOP data or super sapiens data or continuous lactate data, and it can give actionable you know, intelligence. Because you're looking at how fast AI is getting smarter. Like the difference between ChatGPT 3.5 is the current iteration a lot of people have unless you're paying for it. That has an IQ of 150. Now, Albert Einstein had an IQ of 145. ChatGPT 4, which is the paid version now, which you can pay like 20 bucks a month for, has an IQ of 1,500, 10 times as smart as Albert Einstein. And ChatGPT5 is six months away, which is going to be 10 times smarter than that again. So very soon we're going to see coaches. I don't see coaches being entirely replaced by AI at the start, but I see AI tools helping coaches and the shape of coaching changing. Love to know your hot takes on those two. So coming from a, I really despise no that's probably a bit of a strong word i really <laughs> hate hate feelings chat right so you probably know where i'm going to this coming from a, a never remotely considering sports psychology as an actual legitimate thing because it's not tangible you know it's not something that you can measure it's sort of a vague thing Coming from that to now, full drunk the Kool-Aid, believe sports psychology is a massive part of sport and performance. 
I don't think you're ever going to get rid of a coach because I am sorry, I'm not going to sit in front of a computer and have an AI tell me, yeah, I, I get your feelings that you you haven't done enough, but you have. It, it, I'm just not going to believe a computer to talk to me about feelings because computers don't have feelings. You watch Skynet will be, I'm on Skynet's kill list now. But um, <laughs> like you, you're never going to replace that human-to-human reaction, like interaction. But yes, I guess the AI will definitely help shape programs, but it still comes down to garbage in, garbage out. It's still at the end of the day, it's a it's an algorithm working off it's the information that you're providing. You know, we've all had those stories where, you know, you, you you get back from a training ride and you've averaged a power that you've never seen before and you're like, Yeah, I did feel like I was flying, but none of the none of the times none of the times sort of correspond to actually producing that power and you realized you've calibrated with 160 millimeter cranks instead of 175 or it's calibrated to a a five degree temperature because the temperature gauge in the thing is wrong where it was actually 34 you know the the models are only good as the data you put in Two of the early applications I see for this are something that connects, and maybe you know you have access to a world of joined up analytics that I don't. But you have so many athletes now that have so many different wearables, but they're all operating in their own ecosystem. So people are getting up in the morning, they're like tracking their sleep, they're looking at their heart rate variability, and that sits in one ecosystem. And then they flick onto their training peaks, and it sits very much in its own ecosystem. And your coach comes along and he puts in, "Hey, you're doing two by twenty minute threshold." morning but that doesn't really change in real time based on how i slept last night like that should change based on how i slept if i only slept four hours and it was a very broken sleep because there was a car alarm going off all night i'm not physically in the same place to do that session as if i had an eight hour perfect sleep yes and i guess that's where that's a lot more important for a a non-professional like we we are talking from two different sides of this of of a similar coin, for example. Yeah. Like it's my job. I have failed at my job if I do not wake up refreshed with eight hours sleep, which I know is what I require to perform well the next day. I've I've not performed my job. Whereas, for example, your average office worker, their job is working in the office. If they you know have to stay late and do a you know an extra you know, overtime of three or four hours and it screws up their sleep pattern for the next day, you know, they do need to change their pro. It's not going to kill them to turn that 20-minute threshold into a 10, you know, whereas for me, the the way the sport is going, if you miss two or three days over the course of three weeks, it can be, you know, those crucial sessions that that add up in a at the end of the race. The second application I see for it is trawling through masses of video. Like what makes a good domestic? Who's the best domestic? I don't know. It's largely a game of opinion. And you talk to 10 different analysts, you talk to 10 different directors, they'll give you 10 different answers. But I'm not sure if you've seen the the movie Moneyball, where they've just mm-hmm. reduced the sport of baseball entirely to analytics. I think AI is going to do this for cycling. We're going to know for a fact who the best lead-out guy in the world is. We're going to know for a fact who the best 
domestic is, you know, we're going to have to split it. Domestic is such a broad term, but you're going to have to split it into very specific roles and we'll have an idea of who the very best at each one of those roles are. So what's per kilogram are great. Like it doesn't factor in economy, efficiency, scale at moving around the bunch. Like there's so many things that that metric doesn't capture. And at the moment, we're really, it's its directors decide, okay, he is a, he's an effective rider in this role. But I think we will have big data to objectively say who the best is in those roles. Yes. And I think the hard thing, the hard thing will be changing the culture around using that data because the amount of people that, well, the amount of people that are in the sport right now, all the way from common, commentators to directors to even some riders that don't understand the way racing works and, you know, what to do in certain situations to really affect the best result that you can, you know, listening to to commentators on TV, for example, where they're saying, oh, to win the race, X rider and X team should be doing this. And it's like, but they're sitting at like $52 to, to win the race like they're not one of the favorites something has to go incredibly right for them and incredibly wrong for everyone else for them to be able to win the race perhaps they're riding for a tenth yeah it's like, and get trying to get that across like that is the best result that rider is or that person is physically capable of doing there's no like thaw force in how how the sport is you know subdivided into okay these riders are are going for that result and these riders are here to win and these riders are here to 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 try and help another rider win the race i mean a good example would be for salaries now should set kuss be paid more than jonas fingergaard because set kuss has been part of eight grand tour winning teams whereas jonas fingergaard has been a part of two i think i i, I don't know i don't know the answer to these questions but it's it's pretty interesting to think that you know he's been part of you know the ten grand tours he's done he's he's helped win eight of them you know there's a bit of a correlation there. <laughs> yeah, he is ridiculous talent on so many levels. But I suppose the the counter argument to it is he's he's not the marquee rider. He's not the guy who shifts Cervelo bikes. I'm not sure how many people buy a Cervelo R5 because they see. Sep on one versus C Roglic on one or Vindegaard on one. But, you know, it, it's really, it's quantifying, you know, what is success and success in the objective isn't always success within the team. Like I, I was trying to explain the tactics in San Sebastian a few weeks back to my girlfriend. She's like, why are AG2R riding like that? I was like, well, because like eight in San Sebastian is a good result for one mm. of these guys. Like it, they're not beating Remco in the final. Like this is actually a, good result this is a career defining ride for some of these guys for sure like felix gal it was you know I, once again i heard the i heard the commentary about uh about what they were doing and i was like i was just thinking to myself well fourth place is up for grabs yeah like fourth place how is he how fourth place is the first result that he can get how is he going to get fourth result well he's probably not going to win a 20 man bunch sprint for fourth so how does he get away? He's got to get away on the climb. So use your resources to get away there. But people were so focused on, well, that's not going to help him win the race. So therefore it's useless. It's like, I'm pretty sure Felix Gal went into this race with, you know, 20, 
twenty dollars uh, to win, you know. Whereas Remco, I think, was like fifteen cents or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so you, when you were pushing back about AI, you touched on the sports psychology element, and performance is so much more than physical. And we've seen this time and time again. Like I remember the first time I really became aware of it was. I think it was Beijing Olympics, the 100-meter butterfly. Michael Phelps won it. I think that was like his 12th gold or something, but he won it by 0.01 of a second. Now, that's not physical. That's mental. That's There's an identity in Phelps that my identity is I'm a gold medal champion. I don't get silvers. This is what I do. I stack gold medals. So anything outside of that is just unacceptable. So he goes to a place that you can't get to physically. He digs some depths that I don't even know how to access to pull that gold medal. How do you tap into those performances at the key moments, especially in Grand Tours? You're looking at your Vuelta stage wins last year. It's like, okay, you're you're spending and you're dedicating your entire life and the opportunity cost of you know family holidays away with your wife and the sacrifices you make 365 days a year. And it all boils down to these tiny moments. How do you make sure you're switched on for those tiny moments? Well, I mean, really enjoying being in the moment, for starters. I think the minute you stop loving being in the, in, in the trenches sort of thing, uh, for a use of a euphemism, uh, as soon as you stop liking being in that moment, that's when you start switching off and daydreaming and thinking about other things. But, but also winning is just the euphoria you get is indescribable and you always want to keep winning. And that is a massive driver of, you know, imagining you know, that winning moment, that winning feeling and getting that legitimately again is is something that really pushes me, myself, and it definitely keeps you in that moment of, well, also I guess knowing exactly your own limits and, you know, I'm sort of lucky enough to be in one of the upper echelons of, of climbing in the sport. So I know if I'm really suffering, then a lot of other people are really suffering as well. And, you know, aside from a, a few guys that I think would be nose breathing when I'm maxing myself out, um, if I just dig deep for a little bit longer, most other people might might crack. And it's all it's all just to get that that winning feeling at the end of the day. So yeah, I mean, I think it's much harder to really push yourself in a time trial or if you're solo in a bike race because there's no one around you. There's no one to push against. There's no one to to sort of pace off or, or to look into the eyes and see, okay, that person is suffering, you know. If, you know, Ghana starts the time trial at the start of the, the session because the GC has already been worked out and you're trying to win the stage, I guess you could look into his eyes on the TV and see, okay, he was really giving it his all there. But there's no real time apart from a time check, like a number. You're literally racing against a, a positive number or a negative number <laughs> in seconds. Is it harder or easier to motivate yourself when the goal isn't personal victory? By that, I mean when your goal is something that's more tightly defined from the team. Like, Jay, we need you to ride the first four kilometers at a base of this climb full gas to drop Yates off to drop Pogaccio off. 
is it more difficult or is it easier to put yourself into that flow state to execute on a job like that? For me, well, for me, it's easier, like much, much, much easier to do that because to win a race, there is an undefined amount of pain that you, you don't know <laughs> how much, much it's going to hurt. You might have to suffer for two kilometers and then you drop everyone and then you can enjoy the last two kilometers to the finish, for example. Whereas if the director comes up to you and says, all right, I'll use a climb here, the final five kilometers up uh, uh, Caboose, you've got to be doing six and a half watts per kilo. Okay, that's going to take me around 20 minutes. You know what six and a half watts per kilo feels like for 20 minutes. And when it's done, it's done. You finish, you've, you've done your job. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day if, some, if the, your teammate wins the race. It, it's wonderful if they do, but you can measurably see, all right, I did my job or no, I got to 18 minutes or I did the 20 minutes, but it was at 6.3 or, you know, you, you, can, you can measure, all right, I did my job or I didn't do my job. Whereas winning, there are a lot of other factors of, well, maybe this person was just better than me. You know, maybe I made a tactical error in the sprint or, you know, all these little things. What's the culture like when you do pull off the win and you go back to the team boss? Is everyone sharing in that moment? Is there a genuine, we're all in this together? Or is it quite a sense of personal satisfaction and less animated from teammates? Well, from, from personally, I... It's it's different if you're in a breakaway with no other teammates. I feel like you always say that, yes, it was a team effort, but I think there is a bit of, well, I was out there by myself, like everyone else just rolled around in the bunch. But, I mean, it's also similar when, you know, I'm a climbing domestique or a, a climbing leader. I don't have much involvement in a sprint. I personally don't feel that attached to someone's sprint victory even if my job was to get bottles all day for the sprinter so yeah i don't know how other people feel about it but if you've been directly involved with with the win like like i was with jow in the giro doing that pull on um, the final climb now that was genuine stokage like that was pretty awesome getting back to the bus and yeah, yeah, I helped with that, you know, like we were there all day, we got to the front, we got the go ahead and we dropped the hammer on everyone else and we got the win. Like that was, yeah, general euphoria, but it's it's one of those weird things where it's a team sport with individual winners. I know when I'm racing on amateur teams, if I have a significant role or if someone else has a significant role in me winning a race, we all split the prize money. But in the car park afterwards, if someone like, you know, they got dropped after 10K and just weren't involved in the win at all, and they, or, you know, I'm in the break all day and they've just rolled around the bunch, they'll kind of put up their hand and say, I, I didn't really contribute to you winning today. So I'm opting out of the split. How does prize money work? If someone's won a bunch sprint and you've had no role, maybe bar getting a few bottles, do you opt out of that split or do you guys split prize money regardless? In the road racing, we've always split equally. You, uh, UAE do it a little bit differently where I'm pretty sure the winner doesn't uh, actually opts out of the prize money because, I mean, in professional 
cycling there's there's bonuses and stuff that far outweigh the the 10 grand or something that you get for the the stage win or whatever like and then when you split 10 grand usually nine ways because there's a there's a government part which goes to tax and then there's <laughs> the rest of the team and then there's also staff because staff get a little bit of a a prize pool as well i think that's a pretty good system but i've had it before where at uh, Zwift Worlds, um, there was a couple of guys that opted out of their prize money for Zwift Worlds because yeah, they after four Ks they they weren't involved in the race anymore. So Pogaccio's got to be a pretty good teammate to be bringing in the splits, considering he wins basically every bike race he enters. Yes, he'd be a very good uh, good starting partner. Um, I mean, the guys at the Tour de France would have had a massive haul, uh, probably only bested by if. You know, if if Poggy had like this, obviously, if Poggy had won, then there's even bigger split because Poggy removes himself from the prize pool. But yeah, second and third plus three stages or something like that—that's that's a pretty big pool of money. The mad thing about Pog's performance in the Tour de France, everyone was kind of you know analyzing post mortem what went wrong. He's really only had two bad days in the entire Tour de France, and you could actually zoom out and say he's basically only had two bad days all year. If you look at his early season as well, where he was just unheard of dominant. But he did time trial where he got absolutely hosed by Jonas and he had the stage, I think it was a Col de Marie Blanc, where he lost significant time in the first week. But other than that, he was pretty flawless. Yes. And I think it's very evident the way Jumbo Visma rode that you know it's not ro- it's not rocket science how the human body works and to have a wrist injury that stops you training for x amount of weeks i think you know for, for me it's a it's also a perfect example for someone like me of i went to the giro with essentially five weeks of training starting from scratch after my knee injury and i was able to get to the second rest day before my body just completely threw in the towel and was completely depleted. Whereas Poggy, because he's a superhuman, (laughs) um, had a classic season behind him, a really hard classic season, then an injury, which took him off the bike for three, four weeks, and then five weeks training. He was able to win a stage and get all the way through to the second rest day, essentially in second place or one of the guys that could win the Tour de France before he capitulated a bunch of time and had to let his body recover. And that would not have happened. He would not have needed that or would not have met that end if Jumbo Visma hadn't just ridden ridiculously hard stages the entire race. And you can see that the, way, the the moment the race started, they were trying to put as many kilojoules, as much TSS into Poggy's legs as they possibly could just to wear him down because they knew, well, this is the CTL you need to start the race. It's impossible for him to be at that CTL. So we're just going to make his form go negative 90 if we have to, and we'll beat him. That's fascinating. That's a really interesting way to look at it. Like it's, but it's like if, if anyone's got a training picks plan, 
they can do the numbers themselves. You put, if, if you just start a new program and put, you know, 1800 TSS for three weeks, you'll watch your form go out the ass and you won't be able to perform. But if you start with a CTL of 140 and then put those 1800 weeks, your, your, your form will only get to like negative 50. If you were to wave a magic wand and improve or change one thing about UAE, something they could do better, what would that be? It's a hard thing to say because I don't know what I don't know, you know? Like I know what's gotten way better, but I don't know what else could be better on another team because I've only done two teams. And I don't know if the situation is better or worse at other teams or if it's just a cultural thing that, that the sport hasn't hasn't sort of moved into yet. And also there's not much that I can't do myself now either. Like typical watching of the game day tape from like a soccer match. You know, you watch the game, the game tape of, you know, if Arsenal's versing West Ham, they're going to watch games, their previous games of them versing each other. They're going to watch their previous game the week before you know, okay, that striker's moving in that particular position. They like to take shots from from that that quarter of the pitch. I'm not really much of a soccer fan, so I'm just <laughs> saying words at the moment. But like that is something that I think can be improved. But I already do that myself. So as a team, it might be able to help as a team. But like I already do that myself with watching uh, other riders and watching racing a lot. But yeah, I think that's that's maybe one of them. The trajectory of your career has been really exciting to watch from our first podcast chat to now. So I'm excited to see where it's going to be for our next podcast chat in six months, 12 months. Jay, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for your time. Thanks for coming back to chat. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling. Okay, okay, maybe you won't ever win the Tour de France, but for most of us, this is what cycling is about. So let us build you the perfect training plan around your lifestyle that's totally unique to you and will help you finally realize your cycling dreams. So whether you're just getting started on the bike or if you're a more seasoned cyclist, we have a suitable coach for you. So why not schedule a call with us and we can have a chat about how we can help you go further than you ever dreamed of in your cycling and fitness goals. Go to roadmancycling.com forward slash contact or pop me an email directly to sarah at roadmancycling.com.